0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: This morning's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks
0: again, Grant. So recently I had the privilege of attending uh, a, uh, a banquet uh, for one of Christ Presbyterian Church's missional partners. Our missional partners are the nonprofit organizations that we participate with through funding and also through uh, deploying volunteers to serve. Uh, the purposes of those organizations, that we, we support over 50 of them as a church. And one of the shining examples is, is an organization called The Next Door. Uh, and The Next Door specializes uh, in helping women who are impacted by addiction, mental illness, trauma, and also incar- incarceration. And one of, the, one of the moments of that banquet that I will never forget, I hope I will never forget, is when a woman named Tiffany got up on stage Uh, by herself and started telling some of her story. So, Tiffany was somebody who had experienced a relapse into uh, drug addiction during the pandemic, and through that relapse, she then found herself homeless, she found herself jobless and friendless, and, and also destitute. It was a tragic, tragic story. And over the course of several minutes, she started to tell the stories of how different individuals affiliated with this organization had come through for her, and as we say at Christ Press, loved her to life. The first person she started talking about was a doctor, a volunteer doctor, who had provided uh, free-of-charge healthcare for her, uh, and she was a woman who did not have, have health coverage, and so that was a lifesaver for her. And after she told that story, he came up and joined her on the stage, so it was just two of them. And then she started talking about the various caseworkers who cared for her at her lowest uh, point and, and who did so with zero judgment. And then a couple of caseworkers came up and joined uh, them on the stage. And then she talked about several administrators who did all that wonderful uh, behind-the-scenes glue-that-holds-everything-together work so, so the meaningful work of the ministry can be done. And then they came up on the stage and joined them. And then she talked about uh, career counselors who, who helped her recover for herself the dignity of, 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 of being a vocational person and helped her find an on-ramp uh, back into meaningful employment and the dignity that comes from that. And then she talked about the room filled with donors who make all of this possible, and, and I'm pleased to say that we're res- there were several people there from Christ Prez as individual donors as well as representatives of our church, which is also a major donor to this particular organization. But the, the thing that she said, you know, and by the time she finished, by the way, the stage was filled with about 20 or so people sitting around her as her support system, and, and, and she said uh, at, at the end of her, the telling of her story, everything good in my life can be traced back to a person, uh, or an event, or a group affiliated with the next door. And I thought to myself, that's actually how a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit ought to be described by its people, that maybe not everything but a lot of things that are good in my life are directly and deeply connected to Individuals and groups, and, and the community dynamic that exists at my church. Why is this true? Because, as Tolkien says again, that the hands of a healing hand, the hands of the king, are healing hands, and, and, and thus shall the rightful king be known. Jesus presents himself in Scripture as a physician. And now we are the body of Christ, and, and, and Acts reminds us at the very beginning that we are now continuing, as those filled with the Holy Spirit, the ministry and work of Jesus in the world in the lives of people as the body of Christ. Part of this means the church becomes a culture of care, a culture of rehabilitation, a culture of restoration and renewal through life-on-life ministry between imperfect people loved and rescued by a perfect and beautiful God. And so we're going to talk about the encouragement that that, that God equips the church of Jesus Christ for, and we're going to do that looking especially at a featured member and also in many ways forgotten member of the New Testament church, and his name is Barnabas. So some people are asked the question, you know, who's the first person you want to meet when you get to heaven? My answer is Barnabas. I want to meet Barnabas before I meet anybody else, and I hope I get to spend a lot of time with him because I love his name, and I love everything that his name represents. His name is, and this is the name that the apostles gave to him, Son of Encouragement, an S-O-E. It's a better kind of son than the kind of son we hear about sometimes on Twitter and in other places. But what we're going to talk about today is the encouragement of three things. The encouragement of advocacy, the encouragement of sharing, and then finally the encouragement of needing nothing when you have everything. So we'll start here. The encouragement of advocacy. This is one of the things that Barnabas does. You know, notice that the word courage is right there in the, in the middle of that word encouragement. He has a, he's a man who has had encouragement put into him, and now he he puts courage into other people as a result. And he does so in two special ways. First, Barnabas stands up for people. He stands up for people when other people will not stand up for them. You know, I appreciated Marty Scudder in the confession time today reminding us that there are two kinds of sins. There's the sin of commission. That's when we do things that we ought not to do, and then there is the sin of omission, and that is when we leave undone those things which ought to have been done. And one of the the things that is easily left undone is the ministry of encouragement from person to person, and he becomes known for this, leaving people hanging through lack of encouragement, leaving people hanging through passive removal of oneself, leaving people hanging through neglect when they need help is what you could call a sin of omission. There are several kinds of neglect that the Bible points out. One is material neglect, and that's, that's where, you know, Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And He features two religious professionals, two, two people with a job not unlike mine who are actually culpable of the sin of omission because they see a man who's, who's left for dead, uh, economically strapped, he's been robbed and, and, and in great material need, and he's left on the side of the road. And it says, the priest and the Levite, the temple workers, pass by on the other side, and then somebody else, a Samaritan, comes in and cares for him. And then there's relational neglect, and we, we, we see this um, in many ways in the New Testament. A couple of shining examples would be the second cl- chapter of Galatians where it says that the Apostle Paul opposes the Apostle Peter to his face in front of everyone because Peter, lacking courage. Lacking social courage, refused to associate with a group of people that might get him criticized by his fellow Jews. He withdrew, it says, from the Gentile and, and, and the Gentiles, and Paul said, Paul as a fellow Jew said, Oh no, 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 no. In the gospel we can't do that anymore. I'll get that to that in a minute. But Paul also, in 1 Corinthians fifteen rebukes the wealthy people at the church at Corinth because they're neglecting those who have nothing, those who are poor and vulnerable, by essentially not providing food for them at the Lord's Supper. He says the rich are are stuffing their faces, and they're they're leaving no, no food for the poor at the Lord's Supper, and this should not be so. So, it's a ministry of Relational neglect. This was what Martin Luther King Jr. was after in a letter from a Birmingham jail when he, when he said, you know, look, I, I appreciate my, my white pastor friends, you know, telling me that I've got their support behind closed doors, but I'm still waiting for white pastors to put their neck on the line in public and associate with me rather than act out of self-protection where they give me private support, but then they say nothing in, in public relational neglect that leaves other people vulnerable. And then there's the neglect of empathy. This is when we love our neighbor less than we love ourselves, which is to love our neighbor less than God calls us to love them. I remember walking down Broadway, uh, not, not, not Nashville's Broadway, but the Broadway after which uh, you know, or I'm sorry, the, 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 the Broadway that this was named after Nashville's Broadway in New York City. You may have heard of it. And so I was walking to work. I, I, I walked to work uh, when we lived in New York. And as was often the case, I passed by uh, a, a a woman who was homeless, vulnerable, homeless woman. She was sitting outside of a bagel shop. It was around breakfast time. She said, sir, will you please buy me breakfast? And I, I said, sure, Let's let's… Let's go in and you know, tell me what you want, and I'm thinking she'll she'll pick her favorite bagel. I'll I'll pay a buck twenty-five for the bagel and feel good about myself and, and we'll both go about our day. Well, she says, actually, I don't want a bagel, I want the egg salad. And I'm thinking to myself, well, wait, the, the egg salad's $7.50. And so all of a sudden I'm starting to feel starting to feel irritated. Can't she just ask for a bagel? I didn't expect to be paying for egg salad, but, but not wanting to lose face. Of course, I said yes, and I, I bought her the egg salad but, but honestly felt a little bit irritated on the inside because, you know, beggars can't be choosers, right, which is a very wicked way to think, by the way, to think that beggars can't be choosers. Beggars should be the greatest choosers, and the rest of us should give up stuff so that beggars can choose. But I had that, that wicked mindset that beggars shouldn't be able to be choosers as if somehow I was more virtuous and therefore more wealthy. It doesn't work like that. And this woman, this dear woman, says to me after I, I you know, buy her the egg salad, she says, I'm so sorry, I know egg salad is very expensive, but my teeth are broken. It is excruciatingly painful for me to bite down on anything, and so the only thing I can eat is soft food and, and liquid food. It was as if… What it says in Hebrews was being fulfilled, that that when God puts a person in need in front of you, you may be entertaining an angel. You may be entertaining Christ Himself who said, whatever you did for the least of these or didn't do for the least of these, you did or didn't do for me. My sin that day was the sin of a closed heart. So prone to judge by outward appearances, so prone to judge by a caricature and so unwilling to perceive this woman's need and to really advocate. So Barnabas is an advocate for every kind of person. This is the amazing thing about him. It's probably why they called him the son of encouragement. He advocates not only for the weak, but also for the powerful, which I know is something you don't want to talk about these days. It's right, we all want a good takedown story, we all want to stick it to the man, or the woman, whoever's in power, we want to stick it to him, right? And so chapter 9, Barnabas advocates for a flawed leader. He stands up for the newly commissioned Apostle Paul, who before then had been Saul of Tarsus, who we see in Acts chapter 7, is presiding over the martyrdom of a Christian named Stephen. Stephen and who had behaved violently toward God's people for quite some time, and then God sweeps in, saves him from himself, and then makes him a messenger of the gospel. And the gossip chain starts going. Can't be this guy. All the things that he did. All the hurts that he caused. No, can't be, can't be, can't be, can't be. And in comes Barnabas and says, oh, but it is. And I hear you're hurt, but I have to confront your bad gossip with good gossip. The good gossip on this man is that God has changed his life, that he is a new man. He's not perfect yet, but he is a new man in Christ, and he is called by God. You know, living in the takedown culture that we live in right now, it is absolutely true that everywhere there are people on the hunt for a failed leadership story. You know, the most popular podcast in recent months on iTunes is a story about a failed church leader on the West Coast. And it's been a bit disconcerting to observe what's happening in my own heart as well as online, where where Christians, even pastors, have now gotten to the point of saying, oh, I can't wait till the next episode. I can't wait to hear more dirt on this guy and more dirt on this situation. This is when somebody's tragic collapse becomes voyeurism, when a cautionary tale that should cause us to look more at ourselves becomes entertainment. We all love that takedown story. That's why The Morning Show is one of the most popular shows on, on HBO Max as well. We love those takedown stories because it enables us not to look at me. It enables us to ignore the mirror. It it enables us to to ignore the wisdom of G.K. Chesterton when he was asked what's wrong with the world, and he said, I am. It enables us to just deflect. It enables us to do the Luke 18 thing. Thank you, my God, that I'm not like other men. Oh, but yes, you are, because you wouldn't be thinking that way if you weren't. I mean, Paul, at the height of his virtue, says, I'm the chief of sinners, you guys, The guy who goes home justified in Luke chapter 18 is not the virtuous, moralistic Pharisee. It's the lowly tax collector who says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. The definite article is there. He didn't even consider himself among sinners. He considered himself to be the only sinner. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Barnabas was formed and discipled not by an outraged takedown culture that's licking its teeth for the next failure story. He was formed by stories like Abraham, who was not a good family man, and yet somehow God turned him into the father of everyone who has faith. Or of Jacob, who was not a truth teller, and yet somehow God turned him into the father of every tribe of the people of Israel. Or David, who committed treacherous sin upon treacherous sin, adultery, and then murder to cover it up and his very best prayers and very best psalms are written not before that incident but after. Barnabas is formed by the gospel. So he defends, Barnabas does, all by himself, a flawed leader, but he also comes to the defense of a cowardly disciple against that flawed leader. John Mark, familiar with him probably more than you're familiar with Barnabas. So John Mark was a young man who was supposed to go on a fairly dangerous mission with the Apostle Paul, and he backed out out of fear. And Paul's like, hmm, strike one and you're out. And he's like, no, I want back in. And Paul's like, nope, too risky, one and done, one strike, you're out. Barnabas pleads with him, come on, Paul. Paul says, nope, and then, you know, there's this rift between Paul and Barnabas, and they go their separate ways, and miraculously, through even the the stubbornness of Paul, God plants more churches through Paul, births these letters that we have that make up a third of the New Testament through Paul, who you might call an unreasonable man. But then we see later on in Paul's letters even that Paul himself came around to Barnabas' point of view about John Mark eventually, because in 2 Timothy 4, Paul is saying, make sure you send John Mark. He is so useful and so profitable to the work that we're doing. So somewhere along the way, Paul was gentled by the word of Barnabas. And what happens through John Mark? as the Son of Encouragement puts courage into him, as the Son of Encouragement puts courage into him, and then Paul the Apostle comes around, we get Mark's gospel, which is widely known and understood as Peter's gospel because Mark was a a protege of Peter, and Peter also was a flawed leader and a cowardly disciple. If you're flawed, if you're cowardly, you're qualified. Because the gospel is about grace, grace for those who follow, grace for those who lead, grace for those who are somewhere in the middle doing both. It is about grace, not cancellation. (laughs) The encouragement of advocacy, and then the encouragement of sharing. The phrase here in the Greek is hypantokoina, which means that they had all things in common. It says in verse 32, the people who had all things in common were the full number of those who had believed. Now, remember, just a couple of chapters before Pentecost has happened, where where the church, the people of God, goes from being a, a homogeneous group of people, one ethnicity, one way of seeing the world, one culture one set of practices, one kind of politics, and so on, to this heterogeneous, global community. That's what happened at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit fell down, or came down, there was unprecedented inclusion from that point forward, where it became come one, come all. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, men and women, married people and single people. Able-bodied people and disabled people, happy people and hurting people, healthy and sick people, priests and prostitutes, flawed leaders, cowardly disciples, you're in. The text continues, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So there it is. This is not communism. This is not socialism. Private property. It's right there. It's right there. Private property but not an endorsement for greed, and hoarding, and self-centeredness. This is a call to voluntary shared life. My house is your house. My time is your time. My resources are your resources. My food is your food. My people are your people. My connections are your connections. No one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Then verse 34, there was not a single needy person among them. Again, they were accustomed to insider-outsider culture. And now they are a family culture. So, all of a sudden, the New Testament letters start to become saturated with family language. God is our Father, Jesus is our, our elder brother, and also the groom to the bride, and the church is the bride of Christ, and, and people in the church are brothers and sisters to one another. It's all familial. Everyone now has a seat at the family table. Everyone now has access to every shelf on the refrigerator without having to ask permission. Everybody comes for Thanksgiving, including the drunk uncle, and the drunk uncle is just as welcomed as the child who lives in the home, because we're family now. Another manifestation of Barnabas's courage is how open-handed he is. I think the reason why so many people are so reluctant to be generous is because of a lack of encouragement, a lack of encouragement, a lack of courage. People don't give because people are scared. People are scared to give up and give away resources that accomplish for them a feeling of safety or accomplish for them a feeling of significance or a picture of happiness, fashion, fitness, possessions, lifestyle, kids, education, we will spend money effortlessly on anything and everything that makes us feel happy, significant, and or safe. And if we don't find our happiness, significance, and safety in Christ Himself, we're going we're to spend it on some other counterfeit Jesus. Think about our financial vocabulary. We put money in a trust. We put it in a safe. We call our investments our securities, but in a family culture, here's what happens in a family culture, everyone comes around eventually to a breadwinner mindset, even the widow who gave the tiny little amount recognizes herself as a significant contributor and is is encouraged, encouraged by Christ Himself as a significant contributor. It's not how much you give, it's it's where your heart is in it. There's this great song, Think by a Nashville artist, this is not just what you're born with, it's what you choose to bear, it's not how much your share is or how large your share is, but it's how much you can share. It's not the fights you dreamed of, but it's those you really fought. It's not what you've been given, but it's what you do with what you've got. Like in a breadwinner family, the person with a babysitter income will buy lunch every now and then at Chipotle for the family, just as the, the primary breadwinner will pay the mortgage and all the other things. But, but it's, it's an understanding, it's a shared understanding in a family that everything belongs to everyone all the time. How many of you require your kids to ask permission to open the refrigerator or the pantry when they're hungry to get some food? We don't require family to ask permission, and that's how the church worked then and that's how the church is designed to work at all times. If necessary, you'll sell a field. If your kid's in crisis, if your spouse is in crisis, if your parents are in crisis, you will sell a field if you have to in order to make sure that they are tended to. Well, here here Barnabas is, selling a field for people whose last names he doesn't even know, but he knows their family because of the shared connection and union with Christ. It's not mine, it's ours. No one has to beg, and everyone has a right to the refrigerator and to the table. You know, there's this inward sharing dynamic, you know, you could call it church in-reach where, you know, it's like we we have this benevolence fund, right, that we, we collect resources for the first Sunday of every month so that we can care for the material needs of those who have fallen on hard times. Inside the church. But there's also this, this dynamic, like I said, where we're, where we're also financially and robustly supporting nonprofits all over town, especially ones that's, that, that, that are there in support of those that Jesus called the least of these the strugglers, the underdogs, like my friend on Broadway. There's an outward face to generosity as well, because the deeds in the name of Christ, done in the name of Christ, authenticate the Word of Christ as we preach it. You know, as they say, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. The, the, the deeds and the words, they, they go together. They have to go together. You know, one of the things that was mystifying to, to the early, uh, you know, secular Rome was, was two things that the Christians seem to have re- reversed. Sexually, they're incredibly protective with their bodies. Financially, they're incredibly promiscuous with their resources, and it changed the world. It changed the fabric of Roman culture and society. You know, Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, he goes around the world reporting on poverty and disaster, and he writes as a secularist. And I I, I love when the witness of the gospel gets into the mouth and the pen of a secularist, and, and, and he says, Christians are always, when people are when other people are suffering, Christians are always the first to arrive, they're always the last to leave, they're always the one who have the deepest pockets. And I am sick and tired, he says in one of his essays. I'm sick and tired of Christians being the punchline at New York cocktail parties. It's a farce. And he says that Christians need they, they have weird beliefs. <laughs> Grant him that. And They give till the need is gone. That brings us toward the table now, the encouragement of needing nothing, because we've already been filled. With Christ we have everything. Jesus is the breadwinner, to be sure, but He is also the bread on the table. He is also the wine that is there, even for drunk uncles. Because this is the kind of wine that makes you more sober, not less sober. See, everyone's drunk on something. Some people are drunk on a drink, and others are drunk on greed, others on a grudge, others on dishonesty and slander narratives, others on gossip, others on shopping, others on fear and worry. We're all drunk on something. You know, I gave five talks last week to ministry leaders. Some of those talks were in Philadelphia, some of them were here in Nashville. And the the subject matter was, how do we keep keeping on in this climate? How do we do it? And at the Philadelphia event, I was taken off guard. You know, this was an organization that exists to minister to hurting people in ministry. And one of the stories was, was told by a pastor who had lost his ministry for plagiarizing sermons and he, then he'd received the care from this organization after that. And in the middle of telling his story, he, sa- he said that I plagiarized sermons from him and he pointed right at me. And immediately, you know, my compassion went out. And I thought, you know, what, what kind of pressure does a pastor need to feel in order to steal other people's stuff because he's afraid that what he brings and has been called to bring will not be enough? My compassion went out to him in a way that my compassion did not go out to the woman on Broadway. Why is it that we're more compassionate to those who've walked in our own shoes? There is a calling here, and Barnabas leads the way to comprehensive empathy, because every person you meet is fighting a hard battle. There's a story behind the story. There's a a need beneath the sin. There's a need and, and, and and a weakness beneath the sorrow. It's always there. In comes Barnabas, the son of encouragement. But why wasn't he called the master of encouragement? Because he had to be a son as well the Son of Courage Himself, who went to the cross all by Himself with zero advocates, Jesus Christ, no one standing up for Him. He had no cowardice, He had no flaws, and no one spoke up. Even Peter threw Him under the bus after all He'd done for Peter. And then He'd do more as He came back and restored Peter on the third day. And now, Jesus, whom we have tossed aside whom we have not stood up for, whom we have not spoken for, always lives to speak up for us at the judgment seat of God. Right now, Jesus is speaking to God about each of us and about all of us, advocating. That is the basis for our courage. You are not under a threat of cancellation. You are not under a threat of a takedown. You are not under a threat of being injured, at least not with an everlasting blow, because He protects you, because He has done it all, because He is not just the breadwinner, He is the bread. That's what makes a people the kind of family that makes darn sure that there's not a needy person among them. It's those who recognize that the son of encouragement, the true son of encouragement, has met their needs such that they need nothing else. And such that they can say, anything and everything good in my life can be traced back to what's on this table right here can be traced back to the one who is the bread and traced back to the one who is the cup, the one who won the bread by becoming the bread. And that turns a community into a bunch of beggar breadwinners for each other and for the world. So let's follow Christ in that, shall we? Let's pray. Lord, we are all sons and daughters of Your encouragement. Encourage You gave up Your life with no advocates there sticking up for You, even Your Father. You had to cry out, my God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And this was so that You would never have to forsake us because You didn't want to forsake us. The the, the hymn we sang earlier tonight, Lord, or or this morning, Lord, let let it saturate our hearts ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held Christ there. And it was Christ who, in response to that, chose to become the true Son of encouragement by demonstrating His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now we have this table to not only remind us of these things, but also to strengthen us in these things as we seek to become beggars who share the bread with our fellow beggars who are hungry. It's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen.